Daisy Cutter. That's the nickname, Daisy Cutter. That's the nickname the military uses for their biggest bomb, biggest non-nuclear bomb. It was first used in the Vietnam War, and they would use this bomb to clear out the jungles and prepare a landing zone for the helicopters. Well, now, 50 years later, even with all their new technology and uh, the laser-guided smart bombs that our military possesses, the military still likes to use the old daisy cutters. And the reason's simple, impact. <laughs> Nothing terrifies the enemy like the shock and awe that is created by a 15,000-pound bomb hitting the ground. When it hits the ground, it's earth-shattering. I mean, the impact that this bomb makes on the terrain and the impact that it makes upon the hearts and minds of the people who see it and hear it, it's just gigantic. So because of its terrifying impact and its unforgettable effect upon the enemy, the military still uses that bomb. Now, here's why I'm talking about this. I think some of us as Christians believe that if our service to Jesus, our ministry for him, if it doesn't come across like a daisy cutter, it doesn't matter. If it isn't something big and noisy, it must not be important. If what I do for the Lord doesn't get noticed by a lot of people, then I guess it wasn't all that significant. Or if what I do for God doesn't rock the world, then I guess it really didn't count. Why, that's just not true. You remember what the Bible teaches us in the book of Zechariah? says, do not despise the small things. Because even little things are big in the eyes of God. I learned this from my grandpa. My grandfather was a great preacher. One Sunday at his church there in North Platte, Nebraska, he sat down and wept at the end of the service because there was no response to the invitation. And it was the first time in four months there had been no public decision made for Christ. Already in the first four months, they had had over 100 baptisms. But that Sunday, there was no response at all, and he just sat down and cried. So if you measure success and how big the impact was, how great the numbers, he had numbers, he had success. But all of that happened before I was ever born. See, in the latter part of his life, my grandfather couldn't preach anymore because any time he'd get up on the platform, he'd have these seizures. So his ministry came to an end. So by the time I come along, I never got a chance to hear a single one of his sermons. So it wasn't his sermons or his public ministry that made an impact upon me. What impacted me for my grandfather's life was what I saw him do behind the scenes. Uh, when I think of my grandfather, I just remember how he cared for my grandmother. She, she had Alzheimer's. Here was a lady who once had this enormous amount of energy, a brilliant mind. I mean, for many years, she was a professor who taught Greek at Johnson Bible College. But then this awful disease came along that took away her physical and mental uh, capacities. And she became fully dependent upon others. So over the years, I watched my grandfather devote himself to her care. I mean, though she didn't recognize him, she had no idea who he was or why he was there, he never stopped being there. I mean, he cared for her every need, never complained. And she remained in this awful condition for years, and yet every single day he was there watching out for her, clear up to the very end. His love for my grandmother was just amazing to me. And the only way I could explain that behavior was that God must be a factor in his life. See, it was in the simple Monday challenges of everyday life that I caught a glimpse of the grace of God. I saw God's grace shining through my grandfather's heart. Now, here's what I'm trying to say this morning. Don't buy into this dangerous idea that if something is ordinary, it must not matter. Or that if we don't end up changing the world by the age of 30, I guess my life didn't really count. And that's just not so. Think about brushing your teeth. You brush your teeth every day, right? Right? <laughs> and in all the years of brushing your teeth, 
has it ever dazzled you or sent a tingle down your spine? I mean, did you ever get up one morning, come running out of the bathroom and said, oh my, I got to find my wife. Martha, you won't believe what just happened. I just had the most amazing experience. I brushed my teeth. I started on the back left and I worked my way up to the front and I got the most amazing, refreshing lather going into my mouth. And oh man, let me tell you about the rinse. I had a full 25 second swish. That's silly. Nobody does that. Brushing your teeth is a normal activity. I mean, most of us don't even think about it when we do it, but that doesn't mean it's not important. I mean, you've got to brush your teeth. It's a vital part of your daily hygiene. It prevents gum disease and cavities and bad breath. Brushing your teeth, ordinary stuff, yeah, it's pretty ordinary, but that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It matters a great deal. Coming to church every Sunday, reading your Bible every day, saying a prayer before every meal, so ordinary, so routine, sometimes we do it, we don't feel a thing. But that doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It matters a great deal. I think this is one of the lessons that we can learn from Proverbs chapter 31. And you may not see this the first time you read through that chapter, and that's because I think a lot of us read this chapter the wrong way. You know, we look at the last part of Proverbs chapter 31. We have this beautiful poem, the last 22 verses, verses 10 to 31. So we start off in verse 10, and we read about uh, a wife or a woman of noble character who can find. And then we spend the next 21 verses reading it like we're reading a job description. Here's the checklist. Do you measure up? I mean, would God consider you to be a godly wife, a godly woman? Well, let's find out. Let's take your resume and line it up next to this resume, and let's see if there's a match. Well, of course there won't be. Nobody, man, woman, or child could measure up to a standard like this. I mean, you read through these 22 verses, and you see this long list of all these impressive things that this woman does, and you think, wow, who could ever match that? And so we come away just aware of all of our shortcomings, and we feel guilty and depressed. I mean, you read through this poem. You're reading about a remarkable woman, incredible energy. She never seems to sleep or get tired. She makes her own clothes. She makes the clothes for everybody else in the family, too. When her husband goes off to work, she manages the entire household, taking care of every one of the children in addition to paying the bills and filling out the FOSA form for a future college student and doing the taxes as well. And then in addition to all of that, she has a career outside of the home too. She's a real estate investor. She runs a vineyard. She's the CEO of a small garment business. And while she's doing all this, she continues to fear the Lord. She continues to be wise, noble, and trustworthy. And then on top of all that, all those other responsibilities, she also spends time out in the community helping the poor. And we think, wow, who can match a standard like that? I mean, here's the Bible's version of Wonder Woman. So if you read this chapter like you're reading a job description, you think, God, do you expect me to be able to do all this in order to be the kind of person you want me to be? Then you're going to walk away feeling all beat up and discouraged. Is that really what God's trying to communicate here? I don't think so. You know, it's interesting. Many of the ancient Hebrew Bibles, you'll see they had the same books in the Old Testament that we do, but they arranged them differently. They put them in different order. For example, in many of the Hebrew Bibles, the book that comes right after the book of Proverbs is the book of Ruth. And they did that for this reason. The one other time you read the description of, of, of a woman of noble character, it's Ruth. And yet I look at Ruth's life, and her life doesn't seem to be anything at all like the life of this lady here in Proverbs chapter 31. I mean, Ruth didn't spend most of her days making clothes for her husband because for many years she didn't have a husband. She was a widow. And Ruth's children did not rise up and call her blessed like they do the lady here in Proverbs chapter 31 because for many years Ruth had no children. 
And Ruth didn't travel in ships to foreign lands and trade fine linens with merchants from other countries like the lady here in Proverbs chapter 31 does. No, Ruth spent most of her time working outside the house, working underneath a hot sun, trying to glean some leftovers from a field that belonged to somebody else. Because unlike the wealthy lady here in Proverbs chapter 31, she lived among the poorest of the poor. And yet, all, though all these things were true about Ruth, yet before she ever got married, before she ever had a child, before she became a woman of enormous influence, before any of that happened, one day, Ruth chapter 3, Boaz comes to her and says, you know, all the people of my town, it's Bethlehem, all the people of this town know, they've seen it. You are a woman of noble character. Though many of the circumstances of her life did not match at all the circumstances of the life of this lady here in Proverbs chapter 31, yet God said of both women, here is a woman of noble character. In other words, in both lives, in both lives we see God's wisdom on display. Or consider it like this, the, the setting for Proverbs chapter 31. All the way through this book, a theme is being developed. It's a theme of wisdom. Here's what life looks like when you live with the wisdom that comes from above, with the wisdom that comes from God. And all the way through the book of Proverbs, the, the primary word that's being used for wisdom, chokmah, is a feminine noun. So anytime God wants to draw a picture, hey, I don't want to just tell you about this. I'd like for you to see it. So let me paint you a picture. And anytime he paints a picture, here's what wisdom looks like in life. He uses the image of a woman, this elegant, noble lady, this woman of great strength and dignity. And all the way through the book of Proverbs, anytime God wants to paint a picture of evil, you know, here's something wrong, something dangerous, here's something that's going to get you into all kinds of trouble, once again, he uses the picture of a, of a woman. Only this time, he uses the image of an adulterous woman, a prostitute. So, you get to the very end of the book of Proverbs. And here's the writer wanting to kind of summarize everything. Okay, now that we've completed this look at this book, what have we seen? What have we learned? Well, let me remind you. And once again, he does like he's always done before. I don't want you to just hear it. I want you to see it. So he draws us a picture. And once again, he does like he's always done before. He uses the picture of a lady. He shows this portrait of a lady, Proverbs chapter 31. But this portrait of a lady is not just for women. It's for all people, men and women alike, because through this picture, God is showing us what godly wisdom looks like in our everyday world. Hey, some of these situations may fit you and some of them may not. But know this, in all the various scenarios of life, if you ever find yourself in a situation like this, here's how a godly person would act. Here's what wisdom looks like when you're in the home, and here's what wisdom looks like when you're out in the marketplace. Here's what wisdom looks like when you're trying to raise a family, and here's what wisdom looks like when you're trying to build a business. You know, everything from A to Z, God's just trying to, in this final chapter, give us a comprehensive look. Here's how godly wisdom is displayed in all the various scenarios of life. And the one common denominator that ties every one of those situations together is this. It's not just what this lady's doing. It's why she's doing it. See, this is what sets godly wisdom apart from any other kind of wisdom. It's the attitude behind the action. It's the heart, the motivation that causes a person to want to act this way. That's described for us here in verse 30. Take a look at this. Proverbs chapter 31 and verse 30. The writer of Proverbs writes, Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting. Now, don't, don't misunderstand him. He's not saying charm and beauty is bad. What he's just trying to emphasize is don't just look for the charm and beauty that comes on the outside. Look for the charm and beauty that comes from the inside, like you see in this lady. In other words, don't just notice what she's doing. Understand why. She does this. Look at her attitude. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. 
See, this lady has the right kind of a heart, a heart that says, hey, no matter what I do, I, I want to honor the Lord. I never want to take him for granted. I want to take him seriously. I just want to be aware of him in everything I do. I want to show my regard, my reverence for him in the way I handle each situation of life. That's the attitude that's being described. Bill Hybels calls this the workers' compensation theory of the Christian life. You know, you, you get paid by the people you work for. So in the Christian life, think about who do you actually work for? Where do you expect to get that paycheck? You know, if you work for Samsung, then when payday comes around, you don't go down to the office of Eli Lilly to get your paycheck. No, you work for Samsung, not Eli Lilly. Or if you work for Nike, you don't go to the headquarters or Under Armour to get compensated for your labor. No, you get the paycheck from Nike because you work for them. Well, in your Christian life, who are you really working for? Where do you get this, expect to get that sense of reward? Hey, this is what makes it all worthwhile. When you give, you fast, you pray, you read your Bible, you evangelize, you go on a mission trip, you stand on the platform and sing a special. Are you doing this so that people will praise you and pat you on the back and tell you how wonderful you are? Is that where you're looking to get your reward? Or do you do what you do for God? Because you truly want to serve and honor Him. 1939, the United States was getting itself ready for a visit from King George and Queen Elizabeth to Great Britain. And because of who was coming, that meant every detail of this trip, this experience they would have here, had to be planned with meticulous care. I mean, only the finest in the way of accommodations, food, entertainment, would be appropriate for this royal couple. And of course, the President and First Lady, Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt, would serve as the host for this trip. Well, on the second day, which is kind of typical for Eleanor, on the second day, she just kind of through a monkey wrench and things, she just changed the dinner. Hey, forget the protocol, forget the special arrangement. Let's just relax, have some fun here. So she invited the king and queen to come to their private cabin, the Roosevelt's private cabin there in the woods so they could enjoy an old-fashioned picnic. Well, the royal couple had never received an invitation like this before, and they were kind of excited about it, so they gladly accepted. The next day, they're out there in the woods sitting in the blankets, these important people sitting out there in the blankets, and yet there was this item on the menu that really kind of puzzled the king because he'd never seen it before. And Mrs. Roosevelt explained, well, this is my specialty. In fact, she confessed, it's the only thing I really know how to cook myself. So what was it? What was the strange food that the first lady served the king of England? She made him a hot dog. <laughs> Can you imagine? If members of the royal family were coming to your house for dinner tonight, would you have the nerve to serve them a hot dog? Eleanor Roosevelt did, and the king loved it. Here's my point. Take that a step further. Could you serve a hot dog to the king of kings? Could you serve a hot dog to Jesus and expect to see a smile on his face? Sure you could. If you practice the wisdom that is being described here in Proverbs chapter 31. See, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul put it like this. He says, whether you eat or drink. That's pretty common stuff, isn't it? We do it every single day. We eat and drink. But that common stuff becomes something special when you do it the right way. So Paul says, whether you eat or drink or any ordinary thing you're doing, whether you eat or drink, do it this way. Do it all for the glory 